So, um, again, if uh, anybody wants to, listening to this, wants to hear more, they can find it at uh, uh, patreon.com forward slash creation instruction. Anyway, Hebrews 12, verse 18, that's where we're going to begin. And um, last week we were talking about Esau, the prophetic life of Esau, how he is a picture of the world and that you do not want to give up your birthright for a bowl of soup. Yeah. And so we were kind of asking, what, what's your bowl of soup? What, what are you willing to sell out for kind of thing? Um, this week, we're going, he's going to take that and don't lose that as we discuss what we're about to do. He's just coming off of saying, don't be godless like Esau. And now he takes you to Mount Sinai. Okay? So don't lose that perspective because sometimes when we don't go through this all at once, it's easy to lose the context of what's happening. And I just want you to see that there's a connection here saying, don't be godless. Now let me take you to the Exodus in Mount Sinai. All right, so that's where we're at. Verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They begged because they were in the presence of God's holiness. I don't have the intelligence or the vocabulary to describe the holiness of God to you. I think that's something that probably we can only experience, and when we do, we're just going to be unable to speak. And this is what they were doing. They were scared to death. And I kind of think of when Paul, when he was arrested, Paul went before... Um, uh, who was that? The governor, Festus, and Felix, and when he in Agrippa too, he's before them, and they would call him every now and then because they were kind of curious and also hoping to get a bribe to get him out of jail. But bottom line is that when he would talk about repentance, when he would talk about Mount Sinai kind of stuff, it scared the king, and he didn't, he couldn't handle it, and so that's enough for now. That's enough. And I've met a lot of people like that. It's, you, know, you can talk about the love of Yeshua quite a bit, and people will be comfortable, may disagree, they may mock you, but when you talk about hell, damnation, and the, the holiness of God, and how we cannot even stand in that holiness, that gets people uncomfortable sometimes, because the, the Spirit works through that word, to prick their conscience. I'll never forget the time we were in Kearney doing street evangelism in Kearney. And we were out on the streets and Dan Woods was just simply reading the scriptures. And he was reading, and I don't even remember what he was reading, and this guy uh, just got like locked in a box as he was walking by. I'm going to get off camera. But he, this is no kidding. He was like this. It's just like it was an invisible box he couldn't get out of. And his hand kept like he was just nervous. And he comes up to, to us and he goes, um, if I go and get drunk tonight, am I going to go to hell? And he was dead serious. Dan wasn't even reading about drinking or drunkenness or any of that. But the Spirit of God was pricking this guy's conscience. And I saw that happen so much. I, I tell people all the time, I cannot explain the power that is in the Word. The power isn't in some message that I can give that's clever with anecdotes and stories and all of these kind of things. Anecdotes. Bottom line is the power is in the Word. John the Baptist leapt in the presence of the Word of God, in the presence of Jesus. And that's why I harp on this and have for the last umpteen years I am so thankful for the upbringing I had in the church because that was drilled into me, is the power of the Word of God. And it was by that Word, and that's one of the reasons I'm excited to kind of talk about this, the origin of the Hebrew words and whatnot. When we look at the Paleo-Hebrew, I'm going to take one week to share that with you. I think it's going to just like blow your mind. I really do. And when you see that, you're just going to see that God, with the power of the Word, 
brought everything into existence. And when we read scripture, there is something that happens. There was another time outside of PJs when PJs was a thing here and we were evangelizing outside there. We didn't know anything happened and Nathan Crisp, who would go out with me on a weekly basis, he went to Wayne College. And at Wayne, a girl came up to him and said, were you one of those guys outside of PJs? And, you know, he didn't know whether he should say yes or uh, no, not me, you know. And he said, yeah. And the girl said, you changed my life. And he goes, what do you mean? He said, you guys were out there, and I was with a couple of my friends, and we were going out partying and whatnot, and I heard them preaching. I don't know what she heard, but when we were there, we would often just read Scripture for a bit. And she said, I turned around, I went home, and I woke my mom and dad up, and I told them that what I had been doing in my life, I repented, and she says, I have been changed ever since. We didn't do anything. But it was the power of the word working. And I think that's what they were experiencing here. In the presence of the word of God coming at Mount Sinai, that holiness, they were undone. And they begged for it to stop. Now there's another part here that you may have heard me talk about this on a message that I did with uh, the, basically on the, the Holy Spirit and the tongues. I just have to touch on it here because we're there. Um, when we go to Exodus 20, we see that what's going on here, what he's referring to, is Pentecost, but at Mount Sinai. We see 3,000 people are saved on that exact same day, the day of Pentecost. Okay? So there's a connection to fire of Pentecost and the fire of Mount Sinai, is what I'm getting at. Exodus 20, verse 18, it says this, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. This is what Hebrews is referring to. Okay? Taking them back to that. I want to show you a commentary, a Jewish commentary, regarding this verse in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Notice the lightning and flashes. All right, here's Jewish commentary. Rabbi Yohanan said, What's meant by the verse, the Lord giveth the word, they that publish the tidings are a great host. Every single word that went forth from the omnipotent was split up into 70 languages. Now this is just a portion of a long drawn out part of that. But in the Babylonian Talmud, what it tells us is that when God, the lightning and the rumblings that we read in our translations, they see as the word of God being split into 70 uh, areas like lightning going in 70 areas, sparks of light. They say 70 because it went to the 70 nations. That's what they teach. Here's another uh, Jewish commentary on this. Uh, Rabbi Ishmael, he said, Like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, just as a hammer is divided into many sparks. You know when you hit something, the sparks go flying out? That's how he described it. So every single word that went forth from the Holy One, blessed be He, split up into 70 languages. Now, this is after the Tower of Babel. What they believe is at the Tower of Babel, that's where the 70 nations came from. Okay, True or not, I don't know, but that's what they teach. So at the Tower of Babel, 70 languages, everything started from there. And so now... What I like about that is the fact that when God's giving the commandments, they see it as going out to the whole world. This is a picture of everybody. God's word is for everybody, not just for Israel. That that word went out to the world, all 70 nations, 70 languages. Okay? Here's another one. It says this. Uh, a Jewish commentary. The Torah says, and all the people saw the voices. Now you didn't get that probably in your translation. But their commentary says they saw the voices. Not the voice, voices. Note that it's plural because that's going to be important. Especially if you think of 70 languages it going out to. 
And it says, whereby Rabbi Yohanan said that God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices and 70 languages so that all the nations should understand. So, kind of like what I was saying, it was intended for the world, not just for the Jews. Now, kind of have there that note, wait a minute, where do you see that, though, in Exodus 20.18? So I want to take you back to Exodus 20.18, and I want to show you. Again, this is what it said. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, plural, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. The literal translation of this in Hebrew, I have for you right here. Basically, it's v'chal ha'am ro'im et ha'kolot ve'et ha'lapadim. What I have, it's, I don't know if I can point with the laser here, but this word here and this word right here are the two important ones. In Hebrew, when it's plural, you have two different ways of basically making it plural, like an im at the end, I am, or ot, O-T-E. And so ha is like the word the, okay? So the, kol, is voice, and kolot is voices. So in Hebrew, it literally says this, and you can go look online, any Hebrew, look for that word. That is voy uh, literally voices. Is that the Paleo-Hebrew? No, this is, this is just our biblical, modern-day Hebrew we're looking at here. Okay, and then the torches is also in plural. I think just because people think it doesn't make any sense. So when the translators are looking at it, but the Hebrew absolutely says exactly what the Jewish commentaries are saying. Now, number one lesson I want you to learn from that. The Jews know something. Just because they have rejected the Messiah doesn't mean that all their history should be thrown out with it. Because God was speaking to them. They are his people. God has been trying to reach them and still is to this very day. And what has happened today in society is we've made Jews like these bad people and therefore everything that they've had in the past, we don't want anything to do with it. I'm telling you, they know more about the Bible than you do. They may have missed the point of it, but they know their Bibles. And that's important for you to understand because we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and so when all the people saw the voices and the torches, I think what they're describing, one of the things that was freaking them out is they've got not lightning as you would think of it from a thunderstorm, but every word was going out in 70 directions. Can you imagine God speaking from the mountain and things going, and you're, you know, I think of the fireworks that we had out at the river church here not long ago and, you know, had fallen down and everybody's taking cover, you know. These sparks, it's like, whoa, you know, the noise, the loud voices, they were scared to death. Okay, but anyway, I, I just find this fascinating, but let me just show you, I could give you 50 verses or better, but I just want to give you maybe three here for now, kind of from Psalm 29 or two anyway. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. Isn't that interesting? The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire, says the ESV. So, it's not that this is out of context of Scripture to even understand it the way the Jews described it or as it is described in Hebrew that the voices go out from Mount Sinai. Psalm 29 verse 9 says, The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare in his temple in, and in his temple all cry glory. Some of our science camps we do what is uh, called somatics. And we'll take, some of you have seen this, I'll take a plate, there's a speaker under it, and I think I've maybe even described this before, but we put sand on it, and we just put it on a, uh, like, what do they call it, a tonoscope or something like that. And it goes through these different frequencies of sound. And that sand instantly changes shape to, to, to patterns. Like things that look like the back of a turtle, to uh, crosses, 
to a checkerboard. It's just like whoop, like that. You have the sand change. It's it's just it's a great fun thing to do, and I can repeat that. But anyway, I use this as an illustration for the kids to say I don't know how God did it. All I know is that He did it. But it makes it more tangible for me to think about how God could create the world when He could go whoop, and whatever that sound is, it's taking material things around us into shape and form. Now again, I'm not saying that's how God did it, but it makes it a little more tangible than saying, well, God said and it happened. But when you say, and, and you see sand go into a shape, it's like, wow. This is one reason why the Hebrew people treated God's name so respectfully and reverently because there's a power in it and they say by these letters of their alphabet they treat their alphabet as if it is a you know reverence because it's with these letters that God created everything there's a power in that and so I don't know it's just something to think about Google cymatic c-y-m-a-t-i-c-s YouTube it and you'll see pictures of it going on amazing and anyway so the voice of God is what was freaking these people out but what I want you to see is among all of the fear and whatnot don't catch his love or don't miss his love I should say that that word was going out to all languages and the law that was coming from Mount Sinai was intended for the world and because he loved them that's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the word of God. And we somehow today have separated the word of God from Yeshua. Jesus is the word that became flesh. And I've talked about that many other times, so we, I won't dive into that. But boy, that's a, obviously a passion in my heart. So, ultimately, the reason I think, I mean, God... To, you know, the, the story goes on and, and the people go to Moses say, don't let him speak to us anymore. And God says to Moses, you know what the people say is good. I think because if they keep listening, they'll die. They can't handle it. They just can't handle it. So the people really didn't want to hear the voice because it was too holy and too powerful. Kind of reminds me of what it says in John. These people will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Right? This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, okay, but the world has not accepted it. That light was coming into the world, going out to the world, but the people could not accept it because they were unholy. To be able to accept it, there needs to be holiness. And I think that that's what God has done when he gives us his spirit. There's a holiness there that allows us to be able to be in his presence even. But anyway, I'll, I'll leave that. I could make a whole message out of that alone. Anyway, going back to Hebrews and in verse 20. For they could not endure what was commanded. They were unholy. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So back in Hebrews, it's talking about this very thing, this very day of Pentecost, but long before. Now, even Moses, the mediator, the leader, was scared. Now, Keep in mind what Moses has already seen. He's crossed the Red Sea. He's picked up snakes by their tails. He's done all kinds of amazing things. The, all of the ten plagues. A burning bush on fire. And even he's scared when he sees this. So, he trembled. I think that's okay. I mean... But this is what the word of God should cause even the most holy person to do. Moses, the most humble man that ever lived, a godly man, trembled in the presence of God's word. 
Man, how I wish that we could get that back in our society today. That we had a respect and reverence for the word of God that made us tremble. That we would say, oh God, I am undone because of your word. How heavy it is on me. That's the kind of thing we should have. Even as believers, even as a Moses who had salvation in the bag, you might say. And yet he was even trembling at the power of the word. Today, as I've said before, we throw our Bibles around. There's no respect for the word. I don't think that this could be any more of a vivid intimidating picture that the author of Hebrews is painting for these people who knew this story really well. And now he's saying, as he continues, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. In other words, your experience of Mount Sinai, or Mount Zion, I should say here, is greater than that of Mount Sinai. Don't be godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his birthright, who didn't care about spiritual things. Because remember at Mount Sinai, the holiness of God, and how awesome and, and powerful that was. Let me show you something even greater now. Mount Zion. If it's greater than what Moses and the patriarchs experienced, what are we missing? How, how can this be? Well, Paul talks about this too. I think, again, I kind of think Paul's the author of Hebrews, don't know. So it would make sense, but we do see him talking to the, to the Galatians and basically talking also about this Mount Zion. And how important this is. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Okay, we're talking about Rachel or uh, Hagar and Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman, Sarah, through promise. Uh, or he of the free woman would be Isaac, but the free woman was Sarah. Through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, Hagar, which gives birth to bondage. Okay, now, there's truth to that. Does the law bring bondage? Ken? Yeah. If it's only the law? Yeah. If it's only the law, you're still doomed to hell because you can't keep it, right? It will bring you bondage without the completion of it through Yeshua. Okay? Now, that's not the fault of the law. That's the fault of us not being able to keep that, right? It says, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is the earthly Jerusalem. We talked about this a long time ago. Everybody talks about Jerusalem and the new temple. Well, when the Bible's talking about this new Jerusalem, he's not talking about this one that you can go and visit right now that's filled with idolatry. I mean, you guys who went to Israel, you saw, you know, you could go and get idols all over the place, even in Jerusalem, and especially if on your day off you went into the Palestinian quarters and, uh, you know, the Arab stuff. I mean, there's stuff everywhere, even in the Jewish quarter. The, the country is filled with idols, and yet the Bible says you should get rid of those things. Grind them to powder, and yet you can go buy those things or see them as archaeological, you know, wonders. That's the, the present Jerusalem. And then it goes on and it says that this Jerusalem is now in bondage with her children. Did any of you who went to Israel feel that bondage? That they're just, it wasn't, 
I mean, there's something about being there, but yet you also see this, this bondage. The wailing wall is not this, oh, warm fuzzy that you'd expect, is it? And that is Jerusalem without Zion. The law without the promise. The law is good, Paul says. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the law is bad. The law is good. That's what Scripture tells us in the New Testament. As long as one uses it properly. That's the key. The church has misunderstood this as the law is bad. Let's get rid of that. Grace, 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 grace. So as we see here then, it says that in verse 26, But the Jerusalem above, that's Zion, is free, which is the mother of us all. Okay, I'm going to take you to another book, the book of Baruch. Now, even the Jews uh, do not see this as, you know, an inspired book or anything like that. But they, they still read it, they understand it, there's some good history, there's some value to it. With that said, uh, Baruch was written about the same time that the book of Galatians was written, is what it's believed, which is why it is not considered to be, but I think they you know, would like to make it be that, but um, it's not. So anyway, to sum it up, the book of Baruch would contain a pretty good eschatological um, expectation of the Jews. So it's kind of like their book of Revelation, you might say. Okay. Anyway, this is what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. I said, O Lord, my Lord, have I come into the world for this purpose that I might see the evils of my mother? Now he's not talking about his fleshly mother. He's talking about Jerusalem. No, or not so, my Lord. If I have found grace in your sight, first take my spirit that I may go to my fathers and not behold the destruction of my mother. So it's kind of interesting that this was written right after the destruction of the 70 AD uh, Roman uh, destruction of Jerusalem. So this is what it's talking about. So God responds to Baruch in this. He's saying, take my spirit, let me die. Don't let me see Jerusalem fall. And God answers and says, The Lord said unto me, This city shall be delivered up for a time, and the people shall be chastened during a time, and the world will not be given over to oblivion. Dost you think that this is the city of which I said, On the palms of my hands have I engraven you so Baruch here is quoting Isaiah 49 verse 16 which is down below see I've engraved you on the palms of my hands your walls are ever before me so God is basically saying listen there's gonna be some chastening just like Hebrews has already talked about but he said I'm not going to let it be given over to oblivion because do you think that this present city that you're seeing that now, by the way, the Romans have absolutely destroyed? Do you really think that's the city I was talking about? That's not the city I was talking about. That's God's response to Baruch. I find that interesting. Because obviously the city of Jerusalem, when we... When we read about that in the Bible, you know, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I really don't think he is talking about pray that that little land over in Israel right now, even though I think God's eyes are on that. Don't, don't, I don't want that pendulum to swing too far. But when he talks about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, what he's talking about is he's talking about peace, that they would know the Messiah to new Jerusalem would be able to come down from heaven that the Jews come to know Yeshua as Messiah. That's what we should be praying for. That's where the only peace of Jerusalem comes from. So anyway, he's saying, no, this, this physical land you know of, that's not what I'm talking about. God continues to Baruch saying, this building now built in your midst is not that which is revealed with me, 
that which prepared beforehand here from the time when I took counsel to make paradise. And I love this. And showed Adam before he sinned. But when he transgressed the commandment, it was removed from him as also paradise. What he's saying is this. God showed Adam the new Jerusalem, the paradise, before he sinned and was removed from the paradise of the garden. Now you might think, oh, did he really do that? This is Baruch. I don't know. Well, continue. After these things, I showed it to my servant Abraham by night among the portions of the victims. To me, that's fascinating. Here we're seeing that Abraham and Adam were shown the New Jerusalem. This Mount Zion, not the, the present, but the eternal. And then it continues and it says, and again also I showed it to Moses on Mount Sinai. When I showed to the likeness of the tabernacle and all its vessels, and now behold it is preserved with me as paradise. Go therefore and do as I command you. In other words, now go obey. I got this handled. But this present Jerusalem that has fallen, you know, here in 70 AD, that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the paradise that's above. Remember what Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. What's he preparing? He says, it's now with me. Isn't that interesting? I find that this lines up with Scripture quite well because we also saw, I think way back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 5 possibly, where it said, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain when he was talking about the tabernacle. When Moses went up Mount Sinai, everybody in the church today thinks, Oh, Mount Sinai, law of God. Done. No, law and gospel. He also brought down the blueprints of the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? A picture of heaven. Which is what Baruch is also telling us here. So when Moses comes down, you have law and gospel coming down with him. He was shown the blueprints of heaven. And the best that they could do is make that in a form of a tabernacle, but that tabernacle was the earthly but only a model and a picture of the heavenly. That is what Hebrews is talking about here. That is what Galatians is talking about. That is what Baruch is talking about. It all fits together. So go back here to Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. So, basically bringing this all together again, keeping this in context. Mount Zion, they were or Mount Sinai, they were all afraid because of the holiness, but you but you have something different. You have Mount Zion, Mount Zion, a heavenly Jerusalem. Galatians even told us that Mount Zion corresponds to the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, just as Mount Sinai had the law and the gospel, the new Jerusalem, just kind of like what Baruch was saying there, now go and obey me. It's got both of them, but the difference is, is now Christ has come and there is forgiveness. He says, don't sell your birthright, Esau. Okay, what's the birthright? Well, yes, Jesus is our birthright, but the new Jerusalem, the paradise, Mount Zion, that is part of the birthright that you're giving up if you sell your life for a bowl of stew. So, in a sense, what he's doing here in Hebrews is trying to build us up and say, do you guys realize what a gift you have? I mean, Mount Zion, everybody was afraid and petrified, but you guys, you have Mount, did I say Mount Zion before? Mount Sinai, everybody was petrified, but you guys have Mount Zion. You've got that. 
and it's right on the horizon. Wow. So I think it's just it's it's almost impossible to put into words the greatness of what God has done. But that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to describe. Heaven. Heaven awaits. Um, I think proof that we don't really understand this is how we live our lives. I gave you this example a while back, so I won't do the whole thing again. But remember the example of if heaven was you know, uh, cold and dreary and, you know, whatever, but you got to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But heaven or hell was, you know, wonderful climate, all of those things. Where would you want to go when you died? If we truly understood what heaven was and the paradise being with Jesus, I don't think you would care if it was cold and dreary or not. It wouldn't even enter your mind. It wouldn't matter if you had to work hard. It's kind of like last week what I was telling you. Christianity is hard. I, I used to be telling people, no, you know, Chris, it's easy. You just got to believe in Jesus. Believe. It's easy. No, it is not. Christianity is hard. What Jesus did was hard. But he loved us enough to do it. And now, there's a lot of work to be done. Not for me to earn my salvation, but I'll tell you what, he's given me uh, a, a task of responsibility that is difficult to do sometimes. And we need the Holy Spirit. We need him in our lives to do it. It's that hard. But they want to say, oh, it's easy. Just go now, live your life. No, it's hard, and you need the Spirit. You need the Spirit because you, you, won't, you won't get through it without it. It's that difficult. That's why you need to be in your word every day. So notice this, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. What's that registered in heaven mean? That's right, in the book of life. Even we were reading in Jude today as well and just talking about the blotting out. Okay, you're registered if you have Jesus, but he says you, you, your name can be blotted out of the book of life. And Revelation will talk about that as well. And so I think sometimes people, it's kind of like a wedding registry or something. You know, you, people send you, a, a, let, let us know if you're coming, whatever those are called. <laughs> RSVP, thank you. And you put it in, all right, I've done that. Now I just sit back, I go live my life until the day comes, and then I'm already registered, so I'm in. Bottom line is, don't take too much comfort in the fact that you're registered in heaven. And let the world distract you so that you, like Esau, will give it all up for a meal. Because we're distracted by everything that the world has to offer. Jobs, entertainment, vacations, food, money, sex... You know, virtually anything that's of the flesh. It's constantly there, constantly wanting us to make a choice. The flesh or the spirit. And I think when we become comfortable, too comfortable in our salvation, that's when we let our guard down and we start living for the flesh rather than the spirit. That we should always be asking ourselves. That's why Corinthians says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. I don't think that's a one-time thing he's asking you to do. He's telling us, I think on a daily basis, we should examine ourselves. What are you planning on doing today? What are the thoughts of your mind, your goals? Maybe, maybe when you get home is when the time to do it. A lot of the sin comes out, you know, it's easy in the morning. But maybe when you get home, you should ask yourself, am I really in the faith? Because the sun's going down and the devil's in your mind, whatever the case might be. Verse 24 says, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. I want to get that context again here. Let me just back that up. Um, 
Firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men, made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What makes us perfect? Not the law, but Jesus and Jesus only. And when he brings up the blood of sprinkling, that would point everybody to all those sacrifices done throughout all of the time in the Old Testament, but then ultimately which points us to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The mediator between God and man is Jesus. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, Timothy says. So, when he says better things than Abel, remember Abel, there was Cain and Abel. Cain offered something that wasn't very good, but Abel pleased God, and he says this is even better than Abel. It speaks even better things than that. So, Christ, kind of like we saw, Hebrews kind of started that way, comparing Jesus to the temple, and he's saying, you think this temple is great. Look at the temple of Jesus Christ. You think Mount Sinai was great. Look at Mount Zion. You think those sacrifices of Abel were great, even before the Levitical law. Let me show you a better mediator of a, you know, the, the new covenant. Yeshua. He continues, see that you do not refuse him who speaks for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised. Saying, and I'll give you that in a minute. This comparison, he just keeps doing this comparison. So going back to Esau, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. He spoke from Mount Sinai going out to the world, he's now speaking on Mount Zion with these promises. He has spoke through both. And both are valid. Both are important. And it kind of reminds me of what we read earlier in Hebrews. How much more will you suffer if you trample on the blood of Jesus? Now that you've understood righteousness, now that you've understood Yeshua and Mount Zion, and you continue now... To live like Esau? Oh, heaven help you. It was one thing when these people are scared under the law, but you, you have Mount Zion and you're going to now sell your birthright and go live for this world? Oh, I pity the fool. Right? So, you laugh at that, you're like showing your age there. Yeah. So, you know, even Revelation 19 kind of speaks of the sword that comes from the mouth of God. And that's what's going to go out and destroy the sinners, isn't it? He destroys them with the word that comes out of his mouth. His voice that came out of Mount Sinai was, was destroying them in their, in their hearts and in their minds. That's the same thing that's going to happen at the end of the world. But it says, whose voice, think of that sword, that word, shook the earth, but now he has promised saying this, yet once more I shake, not only the earth, but also heaven. Here's that comparison. You think, oh, now Mount Sinai is all done? No, once more, I'm going to shake it even greater than Mount Sinai because there's a holiness that is even greater because now I have sent my son. I have given you a way to paradise, and if you... Trample on that. You are, I, I can't imagine the wrath of God. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, the earthly is what's shaken. What is not shaken is the eternal. The Jerusalem of 70 AD, gone. It was shaken, but the Jerusalem that is above, the free woman, that one, it can't be shaken. 
It cannot be removed. It doesn't matter what you think, how out of control this world is right now. And people think, oh, the world is ending and God, you know, is, what's he going to do? Well, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's winning. He's winning. Can't be shaken. Right? Okay, they didn't escape the powerful voice at Sinai. And now there's something even more powerful than that that's here. So, if you're refusing the gospel that Jesus gave, and you're choosing to watch porn or... Just live your life. If you're choosing to ignore the commandments of God, period. Maybe it's not all of those, you know, typical porn, you know, I can't even think of sins right now, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You know what I mean. What about those things God has told us to do, not just the things that he's told us not to do? Those are all commands, aren't they? But we always look at the commands as what he's told us not to do. But there's plenty that he's told us to do. And so when I'm talking about if we refuse the gospel of Jesus, keep that in mind that why were the commandments given? Because God had delivered them from Egypt. Because he had given them the Passover lamb. Then he gave them the commandments. Well, because he has given us the gospel, because there is a new Jerusalem, because there's a better mediator, there's some commandments. And we ought to be diving into them, searching them out to get to know Jesus even more. You know, I can think of even Peter, I think it's chapter 3, 2 Peter 3 maybe, verse 6 where it says that we wait for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Just along the same lines of what Hebrews is saying. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each, man, each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. I love this, and I encourage you to go back and read more of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 3 here because I use this a lot when it comes to people believing in evolution and all of these kind of things. I'm telling you guys, evolution's a lie. This idea of millions of years is a, a lie from the pits of hell. But I know believers who believe in millions of years and are all screwed up in their theology, but they love Jesus. And guess what? They're going to be in heaven with me. Because it's not based on how good I am. It is my relationship with Jesus. And I know there's some ignorance and all of that. But I know there will be people like that. And this is one of those verses that will tell you that, this chapter. Because it says, we're all building on the foundation of Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Some of us are going to build with wood, hay, and stubble. Others are going to build with precious stones, gold, and silver. And it says that day is going to bring it to light. Because all of it will pass through the fire. Now, if what you built on the foundation of Jesus is wood, hay, and stubble, evolution, just going and living your life for Jesus, not really witnessing, but you're living for Jesus, you don't drink, you don't smoke, but you don't really do the other things he told you to do, I think you'll be in heaven. But you see, there's going to be a lot that burns up, the wood, the hay, and the stubble. It says, if that's you... It says, he himself will survive, but only as though escaping through the flames. 1 Corinthians 3. In other words, the foundation is there. Everything you built, that, you know, the lumber, we talked about that before, the lumber you were sending on ahead, it's going to come down. But if you're building on chasing after the kingdom of God, chasing after Mount Zion, rather than chasing after the earthly Jerusalem and the things of this world, then you're building with gold, silver, precious stones. They go through the fire, they survive. And to them, it says, he, when those things go through the fire, he will be rewarded. He will receive his reward. That's the blessing of the law of God. 
You know, Brent Turway was talking here this week again just about, he keeps coming back with all of these analogies to, to the, how the church could get rid of the law of God when it was, it's a treasure. It is a treasure chest. And we should be seeking it. it, it it's just so good, he says. I, he says, it's so clear to me. Now that I have been chasing after it, God has opened my eyes to see that it is for my good. No wonder the devil wants you not to know the law because you curse yourself. You miss out on all the blessings that it has for you. So, we're not talking about salvation. All of our work done in the flesh as well is going to be destroyed. Okay? Anything done in the flesh. All of our, our you know, works that we think that we're pleasing God with, but you know, maybe false motives, whatever the case might be, those aren't going to make it. But if you love Jesus, hey, you're a brother in Christ. You know, I plead that you, you would be blessed not only on this side of heaven, but on the other side as well to be rewarded. And that's what I want for you guys. So many people think that this is a, a legalistic Bible study because we love the law. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. I love you, and that's why we should love the law, because I want to see you be blessed. I want to see you have a deeper relationship with Jesus. He goes on in verse 28, getting close to done here now. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Notice those things back and forth? Side by side, I should say. Now that you have grace, let us have grace. What do you do once you have grace? You serve. And how do you serve him? Acceptably. How do you know what's acceptable? By his word. And you do it with reverence and fear. We've all but removed the fear of God from churches today. Why? The law is gone. And it says then, for our God is a consuming fire. Notice this is all after grace. I don't know how you can miss it. Just like at Mount Sinai, or Egypt I should say, they were delivered. God gave them grace, uh, the Passover lamb, deliverance. And then he gave them instructions to serve him. Like you were saying, the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what it is. It's our manual. Now, by the way, Hebrews isn't just pulling things out of the air. As he's been doing all through the entire book, what's he doing? He's taking you back to the Old Testament. And yet there are churches today or Bibles today that we just give the New Testament away because that's all that's important. How are they going to understand what they're even talking about? Because he's quoting Deuteronomy 4.23 here, one of those ancient, you know, uh, obsolete books, apparently. Well, if it was, why is he quoting it in the New Testament? Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Um, you know, that's the context of Hebrews right there. He's pulling it from Deuteronomy. You take that context with you to Hebrews. Be careful not to forget the covenant. Even the new covenant has rules. If you love me. Right? So you cannot separate that. It's the devil's grace that tells you that you can now walk away from the law and be content and comfortable and live in rebellion and disobedience and all of those kinds of things. Exodus 13.8 also said this, On that day, this is Passover, tell your son I do this. Why? Why does he obey and keep the Passover year after year after year? Because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips, for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Just what I've been telling you. Why do you obey and keep the Passover? Why should we do that this year? Because God delivered you. So let's go remember it and celebrate it so that it's not forgotten, so that your kids will know. That's why we do it. It's a response to the gospel. Going back to Hebrews, that for our God is a consuming fire once more. Um, I want to just show you to close out that word for jealous. For our God is a consuming fire. When we read it here in Deuteronomy again, it goes on and it says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That word jealous, Elkanah in Hebrew. Elkanah is the exact same term that is explicitly used in a marriage covenant. Remember the... the um, the law for the, the jealous husband, basically. It's explicitly used for that. In other words, as we see throughout the Bible in many other places, what he's saying is this covenant that I'm making with you, what he has done for us, this is a marriage covenant. And a marriage covenant, by the way, does kind of go both ways too, doesn't it? And he's jealous. And you ever want to see a man go nuts, see his wife cheat on him, right? See the, the hurt when a husband cheats on a wife, the, the absolute devastation. And this is the kind of thing that is being talked about here. So when we aren't obeying God, Put that into the, a marriage covenant relationship, how that affects it. Hosea says this, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. Okay, God will not tolerate adultery. He will not share you with another. And if you think he will and you can just say, okay, I believe in you, Jesus, now I'm going to go and sleep around it isn't going to fly very well. He's a jealous God. And I'll tell you what, a jealous husband, you don't want to get in the way, especially one that has a gun. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And God's got much more than that. And that's the picture that he's painting here. He's a consuming fire, a jealous God, and he's not going to share you. He will not. And that means when he comes back, there will be wrath, the wrath of God. I was telling Tara this week, just some of the evils that are in this world that have been going on for centuries upon centuries. This isn't new. A lot of it's being exposed to people. So, you know, we're, the wool is, you know, being taken off of our eyes on some things. But it's been going on for centuries. It's nothing new even though it's being exposed more. I can't imagine how much it ticks me off. I was listening to something, listening to, about Planned Parenthood and you know those people that went in and they have all this video of them selling body parts of babies and watching those women selling these baby parts and just being so evil and funny, and cracking jokes, and as if it's no big deal, and here they are murdering children. Listening to that, I just thought, oh man, I would love to be in a room with that person. And I think, if this is how I feel, I cannot imagine how God feels. And he has seen this, the sins piling up to heaven. Well, we go and live our lives, by the way, and don't worry about it, you know, that's all right. Yeah, we know there's a Planned Parenthood there, but that's, you know, we don't see what's happening in there. We know, we just don't see. God sees every bit of it. And I'm telling you, he is going to, he's going to be mad. Can't imagine. 
Jeremiah. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. That treacherous, that word, I don't think we have in the English language. I think we have visuals that are better than the words. Proverbs 24, or 7, verse 4, Wrath is cruel, anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Proverbs 6, 34, For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Those babies that have been killed, God is jealous for them. Okay, he is jealous for you. And those who, who are leading the shepherds that are leading the sheep astray, all of it. It's all likened to adultery here. And anyway, um, just know that you can't expect to turn away from your husband and get away with it. It won't happen. Song of Songs says this as well, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame, like a consuming fire. It's that same word, Elkanah. Numbers here talks about, I'm not going to read all of this, but you can go read in Numbers 5, where they were, if you, your husband suspected the wife of jealousy, that they would basically make this sacrifice, mix some of the, the dust and you know, ashes in the water, the floor, dirt from the tabernacle, mix it together, and you had to drink it. If the wife had been unfaithful, um, it says this um, at the end here, if no man has lain with you and you have not gone astray to uncleanliness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. There was no curse for you. Even though you drank it, it wouldn't harm you. Then it goes on, but if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse. He shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. And when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. Put that into context that marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. If you've been faithful to God, I don't care how much the devil accuses you. I don't care how much you can accuse yourself. There will be no curse. This is what God has done with the law. He has not taken the law away. He has taken the curse of the law away. It will not harm you. It will only bring you blessings. But if you have been unfaithful, there's a curse that comes with that law. Whether you believe in it or not, there's a curse that comes from the law. Yeah, there is a freedom and a peace. Not only, you know, yeah, just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And we should have that peace every day. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can say, yes, we passed the test. We've drank. And we don't have to worry about it. So therefore, we should have peace because there will be no curse for me. And so, yeah, there is that picture for sure. And Matthew 7, remember those that come before the Lord. Lord, we perform miracles in your name. They're not fooling him. The law will not allow you to fool God as far as whether you are faithful to him or not. Just can't happen. And... Anyway, it goes on, then the woman shall say, Amen, and it shall be. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water, and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. So, uh, again, the spiritual reality that's going on here is that you cannot get away with being a phony Christian. This woman, nobody could have known, maybe, except for the other guy that she cheated with. But as soon as she drinks that water, the curses that are written down will fall upon her. So, God knows. And, by the way, um, we too, as I said, are written in a book. The book of life or book of records, if you're not in the book of life. 
So there are blessings and curses, and I'll just close on this one right here, talking about that. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books, plural, were opened. Sepharim. And another book, singular, Sephir was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Notice the two sides. Those that are going to have their belly swell and their thigh rot, and those that will have peace. If your name is written in the book of life, that's the only thing that gets you into heaven. Oh, is your name there? Yep, there it is, right there. Andrew, come on in. Okay? If it's not there, other books are there to say, oh, I see what you did, Andrew, May 23rd of 2020. I see what you did here. These books, these deeds, all of them will be recorded and you will be judged according to what you have done. So it's kind of like, anyway, the book of Numbers. There's a blessing or there's a curse. It's written down, but you know, it's whether you belong to him or not. So let us therefore obey because our husband has written our names in the book of life. Okay? Don't let your name be blotted out. Don't be godless like Esau. Remember God is a consuming fire. Remember God is Elkanah. He is a jealous God. And let those things be always on your mind as you go through this week and this month and the next few years that you always have that, that reverence, that fear, and that on the forefront of your mind at all times so that when the devil is there to tempt you for whatever it is that you're reminded of that. So, because of God's grace. Let's pray.